Nearly 13% of patients who went to Emerge in Manitoba left before receiving care. Victoria City Council inflationary increase ignored by guess which department? Inuit in Quebec are 15 times more likely to be detained than white Quebecers. Student leader confirmed to be caught in the RCMP's so-called dirty tricks program in the 1960s. And ACTRA calls out the federal government for using scab labor in their commercials. Good morning. It's Monday, February 27th. I'm Nora, and here are your headlines. New data from Manitoba's Central Health Agency, Shared Health, released last week shows that nearly 13% of all patients who went to an emergency room or urgent care center in 2022 left without actually receiving care. It's the highest rate in five years, which of course means that this isn't exactly the fault of the pandemic. At Health Sciences Center, Winnipeg Central Hospital, more than a quarter of all patients who arrived at Emerge left without receiving care. Now, there's no indication in the CBC News article whether that means they didn't see a doctor at all or they didn't see a doctor who could diagnose or prescribe something for them. Health Sciences Center had the biggest rate of people coming to emerge and leaving without being able to get the care that they needed. Though five years ago at the same hospital, the number of people who left before receiving care was just 5.1%. That was before two other hospitals, Seven Oaks and Concordia, were transitioned out of being emergency rooms to urgent care centers. In the unbylined article for CBC News, Manitoba Nurses Union President Darlene Jackson is quoted as saying, The dire situation of our province's healthcare system is laid bare when over a quarter of patients visiting the emergency department of Manitoba's flagship hospital are leaving without being seen due to unacceptable wait times. Shared Health says that they will try and address this issue with some fixes that pretty much amount to rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. They want to add a physician in triage and they want to move long-term care patients out of hospitals and into other alternatives. This is something that many health agencies across Canada promised to do at the start of the pandemic to release the strain on emergency rooms. Of course, this is impossible when there's nowhere suitable to send these patients. Now, a quick story from Mary Griffin at Czech News out of Victoria. Victoria City Council voted to cap the annual property tax increase at 6.96%. Naturally, they asked city departments to keep their budget increases to the same amount. One department is refusing. Can you guess which one? Can you guess which department acts with impunity towards those who hold elected office and make decisions as per their democratic mandate? The police board, they're going ahead with a budget that outpaces the city mandated increase amount at 9.55%. Griffith writes that the increase amounts to about $6 million, which is, quote, far and above any other city budget. The police board's defense, well, they did, quote, their own deliberations, unquote, and that's what they've decided. Now to Quebec, where Jacob Sarabin from the Canadian Press is reporting that Inuit in Quebec are 15 times more likely to be jailed than the provincial average. Sarabin's report has a slew of stunning figures like that. Over 12 months in 2021-22, for example, just over 600 Inuit were sent to a Quebec jail. 
That represents 4.5% of the entire population of Inuit living in Quebec. Inuit are also twice as likely to be jailed in Quebec than other Indigenous people. One of the reasons for this difference, where the Cree nation has been able to control their justice system, the Inuit have not been able to do so. Despite the region being 90% Inuit, only four of 88 police officers with the Nunavik police services are Inuit. Inuit are also sent incredibly far distances when they're detained. One person in the story was sent to Amos, which is common. Amos is 1,500 kilometers away from his community of Kwetak. While in Amos, he was served raw food, including raw meat, something that he suggested was related to the stereotype that Inuit eat raw meat. Most Inuit who are detained in Amos aren't actually sent directly there first. They're often sent to Montreal for bail hearings and then driven to the Northeast community, which is about 600 kilometers away from Montreal. Sarabin reports that detainees are often strip-searched as part of the process. These conditions have triggered a class-action lawsuit that alleges that the way Inuit are treated when they're detained is unconstitutional. Neither the Quebec government, both Ian Lafreniere, the minister responsible for Indigenous Affairs, nor François Bonardel, the public security minister, nor the Nunavik police, nor the Makivik Corporation, which represents Inuit in negotiations with the province, responded to requests for comment. I have another Canadian press story for you, this time from Jim Bronskill. Bronskill reports that newly revealed documents shows that Roosevelt Rosie Douglas was the target of the RCMP's so-called Dirty Tricks program back in the 1960s and the 1970s. Douglas was a black power activist in Canada, coming to the movement while studying in Montreal. He studied both at Sir George Williams and McGill. Sir George Williams is now Concordia. Douglas was a leader of the infamous Computer Center protest at Concordia in 1969. After nearly a year of fighting against institutional racism, students occupied the ninth floor of the hall building. The students held their position for 11 days when the university and the students almost came to negotiated agreement. As things fell apart, the students barricaded access to the seventh floor, which they had been occupying for two days of that, and said that they would destroy the university's computers if they called police. What the students didn't know was that the university had already called in the police. Now, if you don't know this story, you absolutely need to look it up. One of the iconic images is papers from the computer center littering the street below. The students destroyed computer equipment and a fire broke out. 97 people were arrested. This past October, Concordia issued a formal apology for how they handled the students in 1969. Anyway, back to Douglas. He was heading to Toronto to meet with someone, and the RCMP thought it was the perfect time to eavesdrop on him. They planned to disable his car, which would have forced Douglas to drive to Toronto with an RCMP informant. But the plan was foiled when the chemical that the RCMP tried to use to stop his car from working didn't work. The RCMP also tried to discredit Douglas and sow divisions among black activists who were already struggling to keep the relationships together. This is from the article, quote, the RCMP archival records highlight concerns about the emergence in the 1960s of more radical elements of the new left and the extreme right. They point to expanding membership in the communist, Trotskyist, Maoist and other political organizations, including the separatist FLQ in Quebec. Pause here. Interesting that Bronskill mentions the far right, but then doesn't mention a single group that they were monitoring. 
I'll continue with the article, quote, the Mounties were also worried about Canadian extremists making links with foreign groups such as the Irish Republican Army, Palestinian organizations and the Black Panther Party and the weathermen of the United States, quote, all with a bloodied record of politically motivated violence and assassination, unquote. Documents just obtained reveal that the RCMP was quite concerned that if all of these groups could form a common front, they would be quite dangerous to the state. That meant that sowing confusion among these groups and their leaders was a very effective tactic for RCMP agents to use. Douglas tried to fight to stay in Canada after he'd finished his studies, but he was refused by the Canadian state. He would go on to become the Prime Minister of Dominica before he died at the age of 58. Bronskill reminds readers that we are potentially closer to CSIS undertaking similar tactics today than we were even a decade ago. He writes, quote, eight years ago, CSIS received authority to go beyond traditional intelligence gathering and engage in threat reduction measures against targets, legalization of the kind of, quote unquote, dirty tricks that got the RCMP in trouble. And finally, there's an update on a labor dispute that you may not have heard of before. ACTRA, the union that represents English language film, radio and television artists, has been in a labor dispute with a group called the Institute of Canadian Agencies. And now they're arguing that Ottawa is prolonging the dispute by supporting scab labor. For 60 years, ACTRA, the Institute of Canadian Agencies and the Association of Canadian Advertisers had something called the National Commercial Agreement. This agreement stipulated wages and working conditions for the actors that members of both groups hired to make commercials. While ACTRA and the Association of Canadian Advertisers signed a one-year extension to the agreement last May, talks have fully broken down between ACTRA and the Institute of Canadian Agencies last April. The National Commercial Agreement establishes wages, benefits, and workplace health and safety conditions for actors, including children. It stipulates hourly rates, overtime rates, per diems, and stunt performer minimum fees. It ensures that all talent that goes into making a commercial, whether voiceover, off-camera, on-camera, silent on-camera, and group singers are paid mandatory minimum rates, agreed to by these two large associations representing advertisers. Actra considers the contract a collective agreement, while the Institute considers the contract a commercial contract. Josh O'Kane at the Globe and Mail reports that Actra is angry in particular because one of the members of the Institute, called Cosette, is the agency that's used by the federal government for 90% of their ad spending. The government has spent millions of dollars on Cosette commercials, while Actra and the Institute have been at war all while the federal government is promising to bring in anti-scab legislation. O'Kane reported that the federal government spent about $44 million on ads with Cosette during the time that negotiations had stopped with ACTRA. As the dispute continues, ACTRA members are getting desperate as they've been shut out from auditioning for commercials. ACTRA members cannot accept non-union work. This ensures that no one's labor fuels lower wages or poor working conditions by working with agencies who refuse to use union talent. If you're curious about which agencies have locked ACTRA members out, you can check that out at actra.ca slash NCA. In addition to Cosette, BBDO Canada, Ben Simon Byrne, FCB Toronto, Grey Worldwide Toronto, and John Street Inc. are all agencies that have been using scab labor for their commercials as talks have broken down between ACTRA and the Institute. 
That is all for today. My goodness, we went over time. It is Monday, February 27th. I'm Nora. I hope you have a good day.